As a working mom, I was spinning on my heels trying to be everything to everyone without realizing overwhelm had its firm grip over me. And it's no wonder since we juggle many identities and responsibilities and tendencies to shy away from our awesomeness. Does this sound like you? I believe one of the keys to successful living is activating our personal power. The question is, how do we do this? Join me each week as I uncover actionable tips from experts and intentionally aligned working mums who, like you and me, are on a journey to boost their personal power. My name's Roxana. Welcome to the Personal Power Boost Podcast. My guest today is Verity Bramwell. Verity has an extensive personal history with suicide and mental health, being a full-time suicide attempt survivor by the age of 27. She describes herself as not having many years of experience, but much experience for her years. And as a result of the broad and varied challenges she's faced, she has a unique insight into how communication and vulnerability between parents and their children can work to protect the whole family's mental health and keep suicidal acts at bay. Verity joins me today to empower parents with actionable strategies for suicide prevention. Welcome, Verity. Hi, thank you for having me. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to have you. Verity, I'd love you to share your backstory. So four-time survivor, how did that, what led to that? So um, four suicide attempts, but really at three um, ages. So I I made two attempts when I was 16, one attempt at 21 and one attempt at 25. Um, they, They all kind of have different background elements in ways, although there are shared themes throughout them all. At 16, it really wasn't about me wanting to die, but I didn't know how else to express that I was struggling or that I wasn't coping and that I needed support. At 21, it was more uh, a response to, I guess, a series of um, bereavements and trauma. And I felt like I had no support system. I had zero self-worth and genuinely thought at that point that people would actually be better off without me um, because it really did feel like at that point my reality was that nobody cared about me. Um, That, you know, that wasn't other people's reality, but that was my reality at that point. Um, And then at 25, I think this time around, I actually spiralled a lot quicker than my previous attempts looking at my previous attempts there were periods of weeks or months where on reflection you could see that I was really really struggling but my my fourth suicide attempt I probably spiraled from reasonably okay to at absolute worst in about three days Mm. Um, and that was kind of following I'd left situations that were unhealthy for me so I'd left my marriage um, which after leaving I kind of came to the conclusion had been abusive I had been estranged from my mum but we'd rebuilt um, our relationship but really I was still coming to terms with lots of issues or actually probably more to the point avoiding 
lots of issues. There was still an awful lot of self-work that I needed to do on myself that I, I hadn't done. I was just like, right, I'm free of these unpleasant situations. So I'm going to live my best life without actually doing any of the kind of groundwork to enable that to be sustainable. Led to you having all of these feelings by the age of 16. So childhood was was challenging in many ways. My dad was disabled, so he had a stroke before I was born. So for um, kind of the whole of my childhood, he was disabled and therefore communication with him was challenging. He spoke in what you can only really describe as almost his own little mini language in that he spoke English, but for him, certain phrases meant certain things. Mm. It also meant that for my mum, she in many ways effectively had two children. So she was kind of looking after my dad and being his carer and then looking after me as a small child. And she soldiered on. Um, So, you know, my entire childhood was just her putting me and my dad first and then everybody else as well. So if there was anyone in the family that needed anything um, growing up, you know, in my teens, if my friends needed anything, mum, can you help? And the answer was always yes. Mm. So I think um, an important element that I've only actually been more reflecting on recently is thinking about social learning theory. Uh, For anyone that isn't familiar with it, I really recommend just having a Google. Um, But but basically, I grew up watching my mum put everyone else first and not really practising self-care. Um, she didn't, you know, she didn't say no, if I wanted something, she would always do her best to give it to me. And the same with, with my dad, which was lovely in a way, but I think at some point, you know, I then observed that behavior and somewhere down the line internalized that self-care was selfish. Yeah, I can see that. I can see how you would make that connection because your mum wasn't showing herself any self-care. And the assumption you made was that she didn't want to come across as selfish. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and really, it, it comes back in, in many ways, I guess, to communication. And I think as, as parents, I mean, I'm guessing because I'm not a parent, but I can imagine you do beat yourself up about it. You know, you punish yourself and feel guilty for saying no. Um, and and not always being 100% attentive but actually I think that whole attitude needs to change and we need to understand the value of communicating to our partners and to our children do you know what actually no mummy needs half an hour to to look after mummy and I think that's actually really really important because how do we expect our children to practice self-care when we don't model it to them Absolutely. I agree 100%. And I know that a lot of my listeners are mums who will be um, listening to that thinking, nodding their head, because we all struggle to say no to our children. It's like this mum guilt that takes over. And rather than feeling that, we'd rather sacrifice our own self-care to not have to cope with our child either kicking off or disappointing them. Um, and it's it's kind of it's 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 really cruel because it's almost hardwired into us to want to say yes yes and and the sad thing is you know we all want to say yes for all the right reasons but actually I think looking back if my mum had said no to me and my dad a bit more and and really 
kind of asserted her own time and space. You know, I'm sure as as a a, a preteen and and probably a bit as a teen, I might have been you know annoyed, um, but that that annoyance is temporary. Whereas for me, my lack of self care has been a very permanent fixture in in most of my childhood and early adult life Um, and it's something that I've had to work very hard at overcoming and overriding. Why do you think your mum was sort of martyring on and showing you that she was coping? Well I think there probably were plenty of times where to stop and take a break would maybe have broken her um you know she's so busy treading water and keeping her her head above water that actually to do anything different to break that routine and that rhythm might have been really challenging for her Mm. Um, and I also think you know they they made a conscious decision to have a child knowing that my dad was going to be disabled so I don't know if there was kind of an element of she felt like she owed it to me to do everything she could to, to ensure that my childhood was the best it possibly could be, despite the fact that my dad was disabled um, and that she didn't want to let me down, I guess, and let him down or, or let herself down. So what was school like for you? School was, was quite challenging um, because having a dad that's disabled even though I probably couldn't have articulated it, you know, in primary school, it is something you're very conscious of. And you, you know, you hear about what other kids have done with their dads at the weekend. And my, my weekends were probably nowhere near like theirs. Um, and actually, as, as a, a primary school age child, I was so similar to my dad. Um, and we fought like cat and dog because we were as stubborn um as each other and then I I was bullied in primary school and in secondary school um but I actually think it was the bullying in secondary school that to some extent was more the nail in the coffin because I think as a young child I'd always been quite outgoing and confident and talkative Um, and I mean my family extended family always used to joke that I would never shut up Mm -hmm. Um, I was the child that was always chatting away and then in secondary school that got me negative attention and I was always told that I was always talking about myself and that I was self-centered so I think that coupled with watching my mum put everybody else first almost created this phobia of being seen as selfish. You can see how your mind connected those two together. Um, and, and, you know, it was just unfortunate in that nobody was to know that, you know, my mum's stoicism coupled with the particular line that bullies took in secondary school would have that result. Um, but I think that's probably really what, confirmed all of my self-beliefs about self-care and putting other people first. Were you able to tell your mum and dad about your bullying in secondary school or was or did you just keep it to yourself? I think they knew but I think bullying is a really difficult thing because whatever as a parent or whatever as a school you do often it isn't that helpful 
um, you know, it's a very challenging situation to try and resolve. Um, and, you know, if the school is lenient because they don't want to make it worse, you feel as the victim like you're not supported. If the school comes down really hard on the bullies, that can often make the bullying worse. <laughs> so I think it was, again, it was just kind of soldier through, really. I mean, it, I was fortunate in that it did come to a end in year 10. Um, so I actually got through um, kind of GCSEs without it. Um, but I think by then, uh, a lot of the damage had been done in terms of my my attitudes towards um, looking after myself yeah. or not looking after myself. And communication was tricky you know that when I was in secondary school my mum had a a disabled husband and a teenager and she worked full-time and she worked in a pupil referral unit so um for the students that either get excluded or are at risk of exclusion from mainstream school so her day job was obviously quite demanding quite emotionally taxing so I think I really just bottled things up you weren't you weren't reaching out to her for as much support as you probably needed exactly and I don't think I knew how to I think it wasn't just I didn't I I don't think I even knew how to communicate that I needed help because in a way I'd never seen that happen or be done in hindsight hindsight is 2020 but in hindsight if you had reached out to her, what do you think she would have been able to do for you? I think we could have just have had more open channels of communication. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I was never the best at, at being open. And even now I'm aware of that and have to work hard to be as open as I can be. Um, I'm more open than I used to, but it's still definitely not an easy thing for me. But I think having that encouragement and having the option of knowing sometimes you can't, you just can't raise it yourself. If someone else asks you questions, it's a lot easier for you to answer than for you to go to someone with a open, this is how I'm feeling. Yeah. Have someone ask you more specific questions Mm. about what's going on I think enables or it makes it easier for you to communicate how you're feeling rather than just being asked so what's going on okay so you were saying Verity you your first attempt was age 16 yes yes so talk me through what led to that and what else were you were there any other behaviors going on in terms of any self-harming behaviours or any anything else that you were doing that were signs that you were definitely feeling suicidal? Yeah, so I, I was self-harming, um, not to the same extent that I did in my 20s. Um, but again, it was more, I, I don't like the term cry for help because most people use it, in my opinion, incorrectly. When I say my self-harm and my my suicide attempts at 16 were a cry for help, it wasn't that, you know, you can label me as an attention seeker, but it was simply that was the only way I knew how to express that I needed help. Mm. Um, I think I was very good at masking it, to be honest. Um, 
and I threw myself, I guess my coping strategy was just throwing myself into fixing other people as you like. I felt like, I guess I couldn't fix me, but at least I could help and fix other people. Yeah. And that became, I guess, a really, uh, something I really channeled everything into when I was the friend that everybody came to. And I guess at least that made me feel like in those moments that I had, I was providing some value um, and also, you know, reaffirmed that I wasn't selfish and self-centered like the bullies had said I was. Right, right. I see. So you'd started um, becoming the person who was helping other people as opposed to being what they labeled you as in terms of self-centered or anything like that. Yes, Um, I did choose voluntarily to start smoking at 13 um well I had my first cigarette at 13 I was probably probably wasn't a a really regular smoker until 15 16 um and my mum even to this day remains quite convinced that it was peer pressure um and actually it was nothing to do with peer pressure but it was to do with having control Mm. and smoking was something that I could control. So that was, so you were age 16 when you had your first attempt and that thankfully didn't work. What were the, what was the repercussions of that in your family, in your household? It was very hushed up really. Um, the, the taboo around suicide has reduced you know, from me being 16 to to me being 25 significantly, but it was very, we didn't really, we didn't talk about it to outsiders. Um, I was referred to CAMS, but I was not willing to engage because even though, I I guess it maybe comes back to, I still didn't actually know how to express what was wrong or what was going on or what I was feeling. Um, and maybe was unwilling to because of this idea that, you know, you just needed to push on through. And so by accepting help, that that was not the right thing to do because I should be able to cope without help, I guess. Um, so I, I agreed to go to a CAMS meeting um, And really, I probably wasn't the most helpful patient they'd seen. Um, But I just don't think I knew how to verbalise what was going on. What was your what was your parents reaction? I think my dad was angry, um, but kind of obviously because of his disability and stuff, communication with him wasn't clear at the best of times. Mm. I think my mum probably felt frustrated because I, I feel like she felt like she'd sacrificed so much in always putting me and my dad first. And I think maybe saw it as a criticism of her parenting as in she'd done something wrong, um, which I think is really, really common. And I, I used to talk a lot to parents about, you know, if your child is struggling with their mental health or has a mental illness, it is not because you're a bad parent most of the time. You know, obviously there are severe cases where it can be, But in general, there's so many other factors going on. You know, if I hadn't gone through the bullying that I went through in secondary school, would I have internalised self-care as selfish to the same extent that I did? So, you know, yes, I'm sitting here and saying she should have done more 
for herself but that's because I now understand the impact it had on me I didn't know that was going to be the impact at the time nor did she yeah Um, and even after your attempt you were when you were referred to cam you were still modeling the behavior that you'd learned as a child to not engage in seeking any kind of help to heal and recover yeah definitely and actually even after my uh, my third attempt after my um, dad died I agreed once I was discharged from hospital to uh, agree to bereavement counseling and I did I was willing but I wasn't I still wasn't a hundred percent engaged and I look back on that and whilst it it was useful and it was helpful I think I could have been pushed harder and when you say you could have been pushed harder what would have been uh, what would have been a healthy push to help you I just think in the way that I mean it's you know I I don't envy being a counsellor knowing you know at what what point is is helpful for someone to talk about their feelings and what they've been through and and at what point does it almost become you know re-triggering for them and that must be a really fine line but I, I think in terms of I think of myself like an onion and whilst he kind of scraped back, you know, two or three layers, he didn't really get to the really deep layers. Um, and I, I still didn't really express or manage to express how, what I'd felt in childhood and what the Im- impacts had been on me. I gave just enough to keep him happy, to make him feel like I was engaging without, fully engaging I don't know if that makes sense yeah no, it does make sense so you were kind of almost I'm not going to say the word manipulation in its negative sense but just if you were able even in that situation to be able to almost manipulate the meetings and the discussions so that you didn't have to fully surrender and accept help in its fullest sense a hundred percent. And it was like that after my my third suicide attempt when I was assessed by the CCAT team, which is the kind of adult crisis team. Um, you know, I gave them enough to make them go away. Right. <laughs> and I guess it, it was only really after my my fourth attempt where um I actually ended up in a coma in intensive care with a do not resuscitate order on me. And when I woke up um I really wish I could explain why and unfortunately I can't which isn't very helpful for other people but it it was as simple as a switch had flicked in my head and I realized that I was running on four to five year cycles um so my suicide attempts were somewhere between four and five years apart and basically what I was doing was whilst I might have been making small improvements in places I still was not looking after myself so I put everybody else first but I could only sustain that for you know four to five years and then I would crash and I would burn out and if I if I didn't make changes it was nothing to do with anyone else if I didn't make changes I would be dead in five years Mm. um you know 2022 I would have been dead by and I still stand by that um so it really was an attitude 
switch in that okay so I might be like this for lots of different reasons and I might have been unfortunate in that I've experienced quite a lot of bereavement and trauma but at the end of the day if I want something different I need to do things that I've not done before. I'd love to know Verity what were those things that came up for you initially as a these are the things I need to do to take care of myself? or this is what I need to build into my life that doesn't exist at the moment? I needed to learn to say no. Um, Because I was very much the person, oh, Verity, can you do me a favour? Yes, without even knowing what it was. (laughs) I'd already commit myself. Mm. Um, So I I had to learn the word no. And I started with little things um, because I I, I wasn't ready to say no to, to other things, but slowly changing my mindset in that saying no doesn't make me selfish. Um, One of the things I did that probably had the biggest impact on me um, was I, after my third suicide attempt, I changed my screen, my mobile phone screen background to um, you have to put your own oxygen mask on first. So especially thinking about that in terms of being a parent, you know, kind of emergency airplane guidance is do not stop and put your children's oxygen masks on before your own because although to you at that moment your child's survival is more important than yours what happens if you only get it on halfway or you've only put on one of your your children's masks and then you run out of oxygen and then you're not any use to anybody and it really changed it it forced me to change my understanding of self-care and that actually self-care isn't selfish it's to do with survival and if I want to help other people I have to ensure that I survive in the first place to be able to do that amazing I mean I think that's something that a lot of my mum listeners will relate to I think we're notorious for putting our children's needs before our own and I think that you know that emergency message of make sure you put the oxygen mask on yourself first is something that I think we have to learn to do and I think it's it's really hard at times when you're busy and stressed and you're coping with life to actually just take a minute, just take a minute for yourself and think about what you need to build your strength. And it also relates to, you know, by them doing that, they are modelling that to their children. So therefore their children are far more likely to practice their own self-care and put their own mask on as they grow up and as they, you know, move into adulthood. One of the things, Verity, that you've talked about is suicide is complex. It's not going to be the same for any two people that have suicidal thoughts or tendencies or have experienced um, it and survived. But I'm just wondering if there are particular strategies or conditions that parents or families can think about creating if they don't exist at the moment or just being mindful of that you would say these are some of the things that if you can work on they may help prevent suicide yeah I think you know relating to um modeling self-care we also need to model being vulnerable um and and asking for support I didn't know how to express that I was struggling and ask for support because I'd never seen my mum do it. Um, And, you know, I can't say for sure because I don't know. But I imagine that had 
I actually grown up with with her having a really bad day and her coming in and saying, do you know what, actually, I've had a really bad day. I can't cope with cooking tea for us all right now. Can you do us baked beans on toast for dinner? Um, or can you just give me half an hour whilst I run myself a bubble bath because I need to take a time out? Um, or even, you know, maybe I've got, I've got a job interview tomorrow and I'm really, really nervous about it. And just actually allowing your children to provide you with some support because that doesn't make you weak and it doesn't make you a bad parent. What you're actually doing is empowering them to be that person, but also to see how they can be the vulnerable person themselves. And I guess you're also giving them a language that they can then use when they're having vulnerable moments, when they're having issues in their own lives. Yeah. And, you know, by the time we're in adulthood, we are far more used to being overwhelmed than children are because we've been through it multiple, you know, many, many times. So therefore it is probably slightly easier for us to express that. Um, and, and in doing so, it's exactly what you said. We are giving young people a language to allow them to do it themselves um, when maybe their experience of going through those ups and downs and, and getting through that overwhelm isn't to the same extent as ours as, as adults yeah and I think as, as a parent I mean I'm a parent to two children I often think about things that are going on that may benefit them from hearing about but at the same time it's really hard to make the call because you kind of don't want them to feel worried or have anxiety and a typical example is with what's been going on with COVID-19 um, that we're still all in the midst of is how much do you share with children? How much is how much is safe? How much is you know going to help them grow as people and give them a language? And how much might send them into some kind of anxiety? I think that's quite tricky for parents to suss out. It is really really tricky. I mean, you know, within COVID at the moment, my personal thoughts are it's about being open but optimistic. So. There is absolutely nothing wrong with sitting down with your children and saying, you know, there's this really scary virus or, you know, whatever age appropriate language you want to use that um, is making lots of people poorly. And for lots of people, this is scary and it's making them anxious or sad because we need to normalize being anxious. You know, being anxious is a normal human thing that's actually it exists to keep us alive you know if if humans didn't feel anxiety we would have been extinct many many years ago mm. but it's also about saying you know yes it it is scary and it, i am anxious at times but actually these are the things that i can do to help me feel better yeah. um i can talk to you know your daddy your mummy whoever i can um you know, practice self-care. I can do some meditation, some breathing techniques, some yoga. I can have a cuddle with my teddy bear. Um, I can watch, you know, a feel-good film or TV show or listen to music. So it's about being open and transparent about there are lots of things in the world that will present challenges to us, but actually that's okay. What isn't okay or what isn't healthy is going through and trying to face all of those challenges completely on your own 
um, and without strat. You know, if your only strategy is stiff up a lip, stiff up a lip, and and just keep pushing through, that's where the message I personally think is wrong. If we are the first ones to have that conversation with our children, then we get to decide how they how they internalize that, how they um, respond and react to that. We get to choose the language so that it doesn't send them into a high state of anxiety, that they feel it's manageable. And I think that's really important because I've had times where my daughter's come home from school and they've been watching news round and then she'll come home and tell me of things that are going on in the news that I don't even know about because I haven't watched the news since 2011. And so it's really difficult because now she's got a narrative in her head that's come from a news channel. And then obviously the teachers talked about it and the other children have talked about it. And now she's worrying about it. And I'm like, actually, I wish I'd known that. So we could have had a conversation before. Yeah. And by doing that, you become their safe space to discuss challenging things, things that make them worry, things that make them upset, things that make them anxious. And if you can be that safe space for them as you know as a, as a younger child then they're far more likely to carry on doing that as they go into their teens now you know 100 percent, there are going to be things that your your teenagers do not come home and tell you even if you have the best relationship in the world with them you know as adults did you go home and you know the first time you drank alcohol if applicable or the first time you had sex did you run home and tell your parents no you didn't because that's generally not what what children do but it is about getting them to see you as their their safe space and often you know these other behaviors that they won't talk to us about can be coping methods or just you know them exploring risk-taking behaviors because of other things but if you're that safe space where you can have calm conversations with them about things that are scary then they're far more likely to come to you about the reasons that they they now might be experimenting with alcohol or sexual behaviors there will be things that teenagers in particular want to keep private because it is their prerogative to maintain some privacy it's part of kind of stepping into adulthood isn't it at the same time I was thinking about how parents can create a uh, opportunity for further connection and communication with their child so it's one so one of your first point is around being vulnerable yourself being open about your own emotions so you're giving children um, or your children a language and the your modeling that we should talk about our feelings and what's going on with us. And I'm just wondering, how do parents create that? How do we create the opportunities for communication and connection on a regular basis? So it's not some one of these kind of family meetings that's called and it feels really awkward and nobody knows how to communicate with each other. How do you create that environment? I think you start by you doing it yourself. So when you've had a bad day at work, or at home or you know wherever you've been you have a chat with them about that and that's setting the tone so then when you say to them how's your day been it feels less like an interrogation because actually you started and you shared first I think that it's really really challenging for parents because they are your children so 
they are the the beings in the world that you feel most emotional about but for when it's talking about difficult subjects such as bullying or self-harm or feeling suicidal i touched on before how parents default reaction to that most of the time is what have i done wrong and they're they're battling their own emotions and actually that's really counterproductive for those conversations because parents are trying to protect their children and their children are trying to protect their parents so if your child does come to you with something and you get angry stressed worried crying all of those things in that moment that decreases the likelihood that they're going to come to you because they they don't want to cause that for you so it's about if your child does raise something with you that is invoking strong emotions in you that's going to interfere in you being able to have a kind of calm conversation with them it's about saying I, I'm really glad that you came to me about this and this is really important, but I want to be able to have a, a kind of, of a productive and helpful and calm conversation with you about this. And I don't want to let, you know, my emotions kind of lead it or get in the middle. So therefore, what I would really like is for us to say, we are going to talk in two hours or on Wednesday when we both have plenty of time so we're not in a rush and we've both thought about what you've said so we're not reacting kind of knee-jerk out of emotion it is about you know yes we need to be vulnerable but at the same time in these situations that's when our children need us to be cool-headed and um, as objective as possible And there will be some parents who are probably listening and thinking, goodness, if my child told me that they were having suicidal thoughts or they were self-harming or being severely bullied to the point that they were just miserable, at that point, what would your advice be to parents about how to collect their thoughts and maybe any support that they should seek to gather themselves and be ready to have a productive, healthy, wholesome conversation? far from something easy to do and it takes kind of practice and skill um in terms of talking about suicide and and having those conversations there are a a variety of kind of different charities that provide training and resources on that and for parents that want to do something you know kind of now there is the um, zero suicide alliance which has free online training for more of a local offer in in hertfordshire and bedfordshire you've got the ollie foundation which provides training on on suicide awareness and intervention Um, But you also have resources such as Papyrus. So Papyrus are the National Youth Suicide Prevention Charity and they run a helpline, which is for anybody up to 35 feeling suicidal or anyone worried about someone up to 35 years old. Um, So if you, you know, your, your child's come home and kind of told you about this and you have followed this advice and you've said, right, we're going to talk about this um, tomorrow evening when we've both got plenty of time, you can then go away and call Papyrus and have a chat with them and they are really well placed to give you advice. Uh, Likewise, Young Minds has a parental helpline, which people can call as well. And it, 
it's it is just remembering how they are feeling and and where their mental health is at is not by any means a, a pure reflection of you as a parent it doesn't mean that you've done things wrong or that you've let them down like we've discussed there are so many different factors that contribute um it's trying to remember that if you react out of emotion actually they are less likely to come to you with things in the future and you don't want that because you want that openness and that honesty I think it's probably really difficult but just thinking about and try and try and think about the interactions you had as a as a teenager with your parents and what did you find helpful what you know would you have responded to well and what would you not that's so much good advice there and so many amazing charities that I will make sure are mentioned and written in the show notes for this podcast episode on a final note Verity where are you now and how are things going for you and what's your kind of vision for your future I'm really really in a positive place and it's you know it's been a lot of hard work to get here but I think now really at at my foundation is self-care and when self-care for me is about when things get difficult as life you know inevitably does at times you haven't given away all your internal resources to other people so you have enough to get you through that challenging time along with um, finding and accepting the right support for you so I work really hard at being open and honest um so i've got quite a lot of health issues at the moment so i've had me since i was 15 but i more recently have developed alopecia and i've just been diagnosed with arthritis which at 27 obviously isn't ideal and i i have good days and i have bad days and it's about making sure on those bad days that i do reach out to people you know i'm still probably not the best at reaching out to to family and my mum but I am definitely a lot better at reaching out to my best friend. Um, I no longer work within suicide prevention um, directly, but I guess I will always see myself as working in suicide prevention in one way. So I now actually work within um, problem gambling as a youth outreach officer to educate about um, gambling and the risks of problem gambling for young people. And out of all the addictions, Uh, gambling actually has the highest suicide rates so whereas before I was kind of working I guess more at a a critical phase um, I'm now I see myself working very much more at the really you know the prevention preventing people from ever getting there in the first place so the the future is bright we take it day by day I'm Roxana Hussein and you've been listening to the personal power boost podcast you can follow personal power boost on Instagram and Facebook If you haven't yet, please go to the Apple podcast and rate and review this podcast. Do join me next week for another personal power boost. Thank you so much for listening.